0: Welcome to the Inside Elections podcast, where we analyze elections in a nonpartisan, data-driven, and accessible way. In this episode, we'll break down Democrats' special election victory in New York's 3rd District. We'll talk about former Governor Larry Hogan's impact on the Maryland Senate race. We'll have an update on the growing number of House retirements. And we'll be joined by special guest Scott Eidler of Newsday. Buckle up. Hello, I'm Nathan Gonzalez, editor and publisher of Inside Elections, the go to place for nonpartisan political analysis for more than 40 years. I'm looking forward to spending President's Day in California's 41st district, which is in Riverside County stretches from Corona, uh, all the way out to Palm Springs and Palm Desert.
1: Hi, I'm Jacob Rubashkin, deputy editor of Inside Elections. And I am looking forward to spending President's Day, probably in beautiful Maryland's eighth congressional district just outside of Washington, D.C. and my hometown.
0: It, it sounds exciting. It sounds very similar to Palm <laughs> Springs. Uh,
1: oh, but- oh, yeah, very much. Well, what 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 brings you to California, Nathan?
0: So I'll be out there actually in La Quinta speaking to a group AGP, which is a big agribusiness company. They specialize in soybean processing. But uh, they they have their a big meeting. And so they want someone to come out and talk about elections and, and what's going to happen. And that that is heating up. And if, if those of you are out there who want someone to come talk about uh, elections with your group in a nonpartisan way, Jacob and I would be happy to go as close as Maryland's 8th District or D.C. and as far <laughs> out as as California. So it's it's fun. It's it's a piece of it that I enjoy and it should be a good time.
1: And I, I would do Hawaii and Alaska too. I don't want to. I don't want to limit myself just to California. There we go. Fair, um, fair. Yeah,
0: yes. yeah. If anyone's out there, just our email addresses are readily <laughs> readily available. <so. laughs>
1: and who is the who is the congressman?
0: In the 41st district? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, And so, and I know you know the answer, but thank you for teeing me up. Uh, (laughs) It's actually Republican Congressman Ken Calvert. And this is a very important congressional district. It's on the battleground. It's a rematch with Democrat Will Rollins. Uh, We have Calvert with the, we have it uh, with rated with uh, Calvert with the advantage, but this race is going to get time, money, energy, attention. And it's a type of district that if we're Democrats are able to win it, then they're probably winning the majority. Uh, it's kind of on that. It's not a bellwether. I don't really believe that any single district is a bellwether, but it, it's important for the fight for the house.
1: Yeah. And I think Democrats nominee there, Will Rollins, I think it's fair to say, is probably one of the 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 favorites of folks here in D.C., He is a former federal prosecutor. He's young. He ran last time and and put together a a decent performance against Calvert in a not so great cycle for California Democrats. And uh, this race has already begun to attract a little bit of TV spending. Both Calvert and Rollins are already on the air uh, with six figure buys. and so they don't have primary challenges either of them. They are fully in general election mode and you know this will be a hard fought contest over the next eight months.
0: Yeah, if you haven't if you didn't listen to the our last episode with Melanie Mason and Politico, we ran through a gazillion California races because March fifth, Super Tuesday is not just the presidential primaries but also uh, congressional primaries in key states such as California. So I would encourage you to go back if California interests you. Before we talk about New York in our, in our big race and bring in Scott as our guest, let's do a couple of headlines. Jacob, what should folks make sure not miss?
1: The Senate battlefield received a pretty significant shakeup last Friday. Former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, a Republican, surprised pretty much everyone in the state by announcing that he would run for Senate. This is something that he previously said he would not do. He had been teasing a presidential run either first as a Republican and then as an independent or no labels candidate, but ultimately it looks like decided to run for Senate filed to run in that race just nine hours before the filing deadline. Doesn't look like there will be a significant primary challenger to him. L- look, this gives Republicans an opportunity in a state that otherwise they have no business being competitive in. Maryland is one of the most Democratic states in the country. And up until this point, the expectation was either Congressman David Trone or Prince George's County Executive Angela Alsobrooks, who were in the Democratic primary, one of the two would be the next senator. They're still the favorites, but Hogan makes this a real race. He left office incredibly popular, not just among Republicans, but independents and Democrats. Democrats may have to spend some money here. Uh, it adds a new dimension to the battlefield. It's just another place where Democrats are on the defense in in an already tough cycle.
0: And from a specific in a specific way with our race rating we changed it from solid democratic because of the dynamic that you just laid out jacob in the, in the primary in maryland being a democratic state we moved it to likely democratic so that is one step closer for republicans but it's not all the way to toss up and this is a good way to explain that our ratings are a mix of where a race stands today and where we think it's going to end up because if the election were held today Larry Hogan might win in part because of that residual name ID and goodwill and the divide currently in the Democratic Party. But once we get past the Democratic primary, there'll be consolidation. Voters who voted for Larry Hogan in the past, including Democrats who voted for Larry Hogan in the past, we believe are going to think differently about him when control of the senate is on the line. I think they they were fine with having a republican governor who didn't really have a lot of power because of the democrats in the state legislature, but putting Mitch McConnell or putting republicans in control of the US Senate potentially with President Trump in the White House, that's going to be a bridge too far for some democrats who have supported and liked Hogan in the past. So that's why we didn't move it. Any, fur- any further than, than what we did. Two more House members announced they would not be seeking re-election. Republican Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin's 8th District and Republican and also Willamette Valley native uh, Kathy McMorris-Rogers of Washington's 5th District. Their districts should stay in Republican hands in this type of election cycle, but their exits are notable in part because of their age. Uh, Gallagher is 39 years old. Kathy McMorris-Rogers is 54 years old. And they are considered, if, if Washington was a great place to be and Congress was a great place to serve, I think you would have them, they would be sticking around. They would see a potential future for themselves, but they're deciding that they're better things that they could be doing with their time. And they are also regarded as serious and thoughtful legislators who are trying to get things done and we will see who replaces them and if they are replaced by more, I won't even say conservative Republicans, but more uh, provocative Republicans who are less concerned about getting things done and more concerned about either getting attention or just kind of throwing a wrench into things. So their exits are, I think their exits are notable.
1: Yeah, both uh, either currently or, or one time considered rising stars, Gallagher, of course, Republicans really tried to get him into the Senate uh, this cycle to run against Tammy Baldwin. Not only did he pass on that, but now he's passing on running for re-election. Kathy McMorris Rogers at one point, the highest ranking woman in the Republican caucus uh, in the House of Representatives viewed as a potential future speaker, you know, was tapped to give the response to one of Barack Obama's State of the Union addresses, which is typically something that that is done by an up and comer in the party and uh, took a step back in favor of all people, Liz Cheney, uh, after the 2018 elections. and And while she did remain, you know, a, a, an integral member of the party, had a powerful chairmanship uh, on the Energy and Commerce Committee. Also out of Congress at, at, at a relatively young age. So not, not a super promising trend for legislators in the truest sense of the word.
0: Before we dive into our big story of the week, I want to introduce our special guest, Scott Eidler of Newsday. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. And with all of our guests, we have to ask the important first question. What congressional district did you grow up in?
2: I grew up in what is now the third congressional district,
0: the one that had the election last night. Hey, amazing amazing synergy. Uh, well, what was it like to grow up in the, in the third and now have the district be at the focal point of national attention?
2: It's pretty surreal. We're seeing reporters from all over the country go to uh, different events in the district. I mean, I've worked at Newsday for 12 years, very familiar with Long Island politics, Interestingly, a couple of weeks ago, Mazi Pillip, the Republican candidate, Tom Swazi, the Democratic uh, victor, they were together at the Mid-Island YJCC in Plainview with the, the family of Omer Nutra, who's a hostage taken by Hamas. I went to nursery school there. I worked at the summer camp there. It's just really surreal to, to see this get so much national attention.
0: And I think if I've done my homework, you and Jacob also have a connection that's not in the third district, though.
1: Yeah, we both uh, we both are uh, Cornellians, and I believe we both wrote for the Cornell Daily Sun uh, in our time there.
2: That's that's right. That's right. I I did a little bit of writing for them in my senior year. <laughs>
0: Nice. Well, uh, Cornell and the third district are about uh, four hours away, I think, without traffic. Uh, but let's uh, but let's jump into the. I don't know how how good, far good is luck. it? Good luck. Uh, I think <laughs> yeah, a lot on, of- on a on a good day. Yeah, if you need it. To- <laughs>
2: Three well, maybe, in the morning on us a, on a Sunday maybe but, Google uh,
0: Maps last night when I was putting this when I was when yeah, I when I plugged yeah. it in uh, but let's let's talk about let's talk about the race uh, on Tuesday night former Democratic Congressman Tom Swazi defeated Republican Mazi Pillop 54 to 46 in a race that not only narrowed Republicans legislative majority this year but got Democrats one step closer to the majority next year uh, let's hear a brief clip from Swazi's victory speech Last night.
2: We won this campaign because the people of Queens and Long Island. Let's hear it for Queens. Let's hear it for Long Island. Eighty twenty. It's an eighty twenty district. Let's distance. hear it for Labor. Yeah. Let's hear it for Labour. The people of Long Island and Queens are sick and tired of the political bickering. They've had it.
0: I love that clip because you don't often get congressional candidates doing political analysis, district analysis from the stage, talking about it being an 80-20 split in the district. Uh, But anyway, Scott, lots of things going on. What was the biggest takeaway for you in this race? The biggest takeaway, one, was how
2: quickly the results came in and how decisive it was early on. I think a lot of that had to do with the Queen's victory. He won by almost 10,000 in Queens. And it was about seven or 8,000, actually. And what was just, that wasn't expected, I believe. There was a White Stone contingent. You had Vicki Balladino, a city councilwoman who flipped a, a Democratic seat last fall. And so there was some expectation that the Republicans, w- who had been campaigning heavily in that area, would have a strong portion of the vote. Also surprising was that he, he did pretty well on day of voting on in Nassau County, and he had a sizable advantage in terms of the absentees and the early vote. So the Republicans really
0: weren't able to come overcome that on election day, which is usually their strength. And how much of that was the weather? I mean, the weather got a lot of attention. To what extent do you think that was a factor in in the turnout or in the race overall? We'll never know exactly, but
2: we saw the supervisor of the town of Oyster Bay, Joe Saladino, claiming that he was going to uh, plow the roads. The county executive, Bruce Blakeman, these are both Republicans. They were having big pushes to get the roads cleared and advertise that the roads were cleared. So there was a big effort on the Republicans' part uh, to make sure the municipalities were clearing roads and getting out the votes. And they were offering rides uh, Democrats were pushing the vote out too. Generally, the Republicans do very, very well in these off-year elections. Democrats pay more attention during the federal elections. That's why they have been able to sweep major county offices in the last three years. But those are during odd cycles, uh, except in 2022 when they won the congressional seats on Long Island. But this was this was pretty surprising. This was a big hunchback from the Democrats on Long Island who've taken a big shellacking in the last couple of years, and they prove that they can turn out. Um, So this was, this was a, they breathed a lot of signs of life. This was a big, they roared back to life last night. And I think a lot of people did not expect that because the Republicans have had such a strong ground game.
0: Jacob, you were up there in the district a couple of weeks ago. Uh, What was your takeaway from, you know, big takeaway from the race and, or, or what do you, what would you want to know from, from Scott?
1: You know, I I think that the interesting thing that I'll be looking at moving forward is, you know, especially as this seat continues to be a, a competitive election, you know, in the fall is, is kind of to Swazi do anything to reach back out to some of the more you know, progressive or, or more activist portions of the Democratic Party, because I, I did speak to some folks who, who were a little bit uh, upset that he, you know, it felt like he was more trying to win over Republicans and moderates than he was rallying Democrats. Now, he, he'll have to run in a primary. I don't think anyone's going to run against him, Scott. I don't know if, you know, you've heard about uh, anything on on that front. But I guess my question Uh, is at at what point, if at all, did it become clear that that Swazi had an advantage here?
2: Yeah, so over the weekend, I was monitoring the early vote numbers. I think before this weekend, he had about 2000 and change advantage over in terms of Democratic enrollment over the Republicans. We don't know who these folks voted for, but we can see in terms of the turnout, we've got Uh, He had about 2,300 more Democratic votes coming out than Republican votes and a massive number of independents. So you look at things like that. At the end of the weekend, it was about 4,300 was the advantage for early votes. So that I caught as interesting that it almost doubled and was hearing a lot from Democrats. They were pushing this early vote. They were trying to get people out to the polls on Sunday because they knew that it was going to rain, I'm sorry, snow yesterday. It was a big Big amount of snow in the morning. So the Democrats really pushed these numbers. They were pushing the absentee operation. That was a big advantage, too, a couple of thousand. So they had a couple of thousand advantage here, a couple of thousand there on the mail-ins. And that helped them tremendously uh, going into it. So I was surprised by that because in the most recent off-year election, the Republicans were not far behind in both Nassau and Suffolk counties in the in the early, which meant they were kind of toast on election day. So he had built up a decent size, and in Queens too, he had built up a decent size advantage in the early vote. So that was the first sign. Mozzie had not been really taking a lot of questions. I went to a press conference last week where she had law enforcement union endorsement. She refused to answer any off-topic questions then. They had been not really providing her public schedule over the weekend. They were keeping her very in close quarters. They they weren't putting her out there. And he was everywhere. I mean, he, he was just everywhere. The commercials were everywhere, but he was going to all these events. He was oversaturated and he was really, everyone was talking about how the Republicans were on message, but he was really on message. She took a harder right turn, I believe on other media. She mentioned that She would like to have Donald Trump in the district. He actually roasted her last night on Truth Social, uh, saying she should have asked for his endorsement and and begged. But she had been equivocating on who she voted for. Apparently, she told the New York Post, uh, and this is in the 2020 election, that she did vote for Donald Trump. She wouldn't back the HR, she wouldn't back the bipartisan border deal in the Senate at the debate. She kept saying uh, there was this very strange exchange between the two of them where Tom Swazi kept saying, you just bring up, there are problems, 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 and you don't have solutions. And she just kept saying, you're the problem, Tom, you're the problem. So I I don't think that that landed. Um, and and some, actually, it's very funny. AOC uh, was on CNN last night. And so the Republicans throughout the whole campaign said Tom Squasey was basically a member of the squad. They took this clip that he said on Morning Joe where he said he'd like to be an honorary member of the squad. And this was in response to Donald Trump tweeting that these, the four members of the squad, the four members of color, women, progressive lawmakers, he told them to go back to their own country. And this was in 2018. It was during the Trump administration and people obviously were very upset by these racist remarks. And so Tom Swazi said, today, I'm an honorary member of the squad, meaning, yeah, I barely agree with you, but I'm with you today. So they took this clip and tried to just throw it out there that he was this like, he, this was quote from him, some liberal nut job. That was his quote, he told people. And his father was an Italian immigrant. He took offense to it. And I think and they called it the Biden, and she kept referring to the Biden-Swazi open border policy. I don't think people really believed that Tom Swazi himself and Joe Biden went up to the border and, and opened it. I, I think it, he kept playing these very what a lot of people thought were smart ads on TV showing him on Fox News saying we need we need ice. I support ice. Um so they they took a lot of these things completely. Out of context, and AOC said last night, like it is laughable that we're in the same cadre, uh, in the same lane in Congress. She said we're on the same team, but it is laughable, and and that they're taking such a reach here shows that they're desperate. And I don't think that 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 languaging, that syntax, really penetrated with voters. I think there were voters, Jewish voters, who were angry at the squad, but he. Was able to effectively blunt that by going to Israel by saying how how sharply how strongly in favor he was of, of Israel and she didn't really catch an advantage on that.
0: Is it possible, Scott, to isolate what was I guess what was the deciding factor? Meaning there are a lot of lot of things going on in every election, including this one. Was it? Do you think Swazi's ability to neutralize? on the immigration attacks like what you were just talking about was it the early millions of dollars that democrats spent on tv to to both remind voters of swazi and define pillup was it just swazi's candidate skills on the ground that you talked about is it possible to even pinpoint what was the deciding factor in this race all of that i mean he got out
2: earliest he had the commercials out earliest Obviously, there's the whole Santos factor. People were have been waiting for a year to get out there and, and mm. you know, elect someone new. So that was a big part of it. I think people were upset that Mozzie was not very clear on her positions on the abortion issue. She said she was pro-life. She wouldn't directly answer whether she would codify Roe versus Wade, Wade into law. And Tom Swat, people underestimate the the role the abortion issue played in the campaign because it did people people are are very much pro-choice in the district moderate democrats who are jewish who are reform and conservative jews that maybe wanted to take a look at mazi because she was an idf soldier she's from israel but they weren't happy with her answers on abortion they thought she would just go in line with national republicans The border issue was definitely a red meat issue. It's a very moderate district, though. There are some red meat areas in places like Massapequa, Levittown, and Great Neck. But I don't know how salient that that point landed. I don't know how strong that was. They did some extreme talking points on the right. And Tom Swasey echoed basically the same things. He said, we should, but we need a compromise. And she was with the House Republicans who wanted this bill, HR2. So he was able to kind of show her as part of the problem. And perhaps that penetrated. But he definitely was able to blunt the immigration issue. The abortion issue, I think people underestimate the, there were a lot of ads. There was this ad that just kept saying, uh, me, Masi, Melissa, Pillip, I'm pro-life. In the longer context, she said she wouldn't legislate on anyone else's life, but she would never say if she would codify Roe versus Wade into law. She kept saying New York, it's a safe area for abortion, which is what a lot of other House Republicans thought. The Santos thing was huge. I talked to a lot of voters who said, we know him. We're going to vote for him. And for Swazi, uh, right? For Swazi, yeah. And I think, I'm sorry, for Swazi. And I think also a lot of independent. And I think perhaps the Republicans might have overplayed their hand using some messaging in the off-year elections that drives out their base. in these locals, they went, they used kind of some more harder line messaging. She didn't really have such a moderate tact uh, towards the end on immigration.
0: Yeah. And I want to I want to spend I want to spend four. But Jacob, can we talk about abortion? Because she you had a phone interview with her and she talked, she said flat out, I'm not for a national abortion ban. But then her response, though, going further on on the abortion attacks on her, I thought was interesting. Can you talk about that and, and a little bit more?
1: Yeah. So when I when I spoke to her uh, two weeks ago, you know, we talked about abortion and she w- it was the most animated p- part of the conversation, I, w- I would I would say, certainly uh, a lot of it, it felt like she was very much just kind of on her talking points. There were times when it almost felt she was reading off of kind of a script, uh, but it was when we were talking a- about abortion that it felt kind of the most personal. She talked about her seven children. She had a, a difficult pregnancy with her, her last two kids who were twins. And she was talking about how she didn't support a national abortion ban and that, you know, she wouldn't tell any woman how to how to you know, decide how to have a family and how dare Tom Swazi, a man who's never had to bear children, you know, make those decisions. And I thought that was kind of the most the most real that I saw her get over the course of the campaign. But I thought it was interesting that at that one debate, Swazi was really able to turn that on its head and basically looked at her and said, so you're pro-choice, right? You know, you're you're saying that you you aren't going to stop a woman from having an abortion if she if that's her choice. So you're pro-choice. And she really, you know, I, I think ultimately the inexperience, the political inexperience came through there that, you know, she was trying to walk this tightrope of being pro-life, being on the conservative party line, obviously using that to signal to the conservative voters of the district, she was one of them while also treading very carefully around this this hot button issue. And ultimately, the personal story was not enough to to compensate for sitting in that kind of on the fence position in, in voters minds.
0: Yeah, I think this was a good example of how the resume, you can check a lot of boxes, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're a great candidate. And this was a special election situation where there was not a long runway or ramp or whatever metaphor we want to use right you need and that's part of the reason why democrats went with swazi he's a known commodity he's agile you know politically and as a candidate he showed it at his election night his victory speech when there were protesters and he said you know and that's the type of yelling that we you know that we don't need in wash you know he just he he's he's been doing this a long time and, and this was the, the type of environment that, that he benefited. didn't miss a
2: beat he didn't miss a beat he he with that protester and and he uh,
1: there was a clip of him going around singing "Fly Me to the Moon." I think kind of in in an old school kind of crooner. It was very just like, oh my gosh, this guy is it's it's this. He could have run in the nineteen sixties and yeah, been, been exactly the same guy and and made it work.
2: Well, to that to that point, when I interviewed him uh, in December, actually, he he told the story about his father, who who was elected mayor of Glen Cove in his thirties in in the fifties and. And his uncle was also too. And, he, you know, there was some song, you know, Swazi, Swazi, or, I'm not going to sing it, but it, it, I don't have the tune in my head. I, I would do it <laughs> if I remembered it, but it's been a long night, but it, it, there was one of those things. So this crooner, this, these songs, he's, he's very, uh, he loves that stuff.
1: So yeah. if, if we could take a step back, I'm curious, cause you, you've, covered Long Island for, for a while. And, and, and like you said, Democrats have had a really rough stretch. I mean, they had a bad 2021 local elections got wiped out in 2022 on the federal side, a bad 2023 losing North Hempstead, you know, losing the Suffolk County executive race, of course, not in this district, but still on Long Island. What, what went wrong for Democrats over the last couple of years? And, and to what extent, I guess, is, last night's victory a turning point a blueprint a road map for democrats looking to regain some measure of political power out on long island
2: a couple of things so is it that things went wrong i mean organizationally they can't compete with the republicans the republicans who control most of these towns who who have some type of ownership over a lot of the or control over these unions they deal with the contracts. They they approve raises. They work with vendors. So this has always been the Democratic criticism: is that the Republicans control the vote because they have so many more committee men. They have so many government employees, so many union labor employees. The police too are a massive union. They pour a lot of money in. So in these off-year elections, a lot of times Democrats. Are just not paying attention they don't care about what happens in the local county legislature they care about getting rid of donald trump they care about national elections uh which is why they turned out in this race right but in these local elections the republicans have been able to capitalize on their their ability to turn out the vote more so than democrats and and win and so that's led to this impression and rightly so, that there's been a red wave on Long Island. But this has been the first national election, really, except for the 2022. Well, the 2022 midterms were a wipeout for Democrats. I mean, Tom, Chuck Schumer, Tom DiNapoli, hochul they all lost Nassau County, Tish James, either, either even or lost. So that was a terrible year uh, on Long Island. But this is a big test. Are Democrats waking up? Are they going to try to Come back. I, I think they're always going to struggle in these off-year elections. That's why the governor just signed a bill moving the off-year elections in Nassau to the even years, which the Republicans protested mightily. But but that's going to be towards the end of the decade when those will take effect. Uh, it'll it'll be four or five years down the line. But that's going to be something to watch. This district is different than the one Swazi read in in 2020 and the couple years before that. It was redistricted. They threw in these. Pretty red meat areas, Levittown, Massapequa, and uh, Robert Zimmerman, who was the candidate in twenty twenty two, the Democrat, was 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 raising the alarm about how difficult of a district it is. It was a very Democratic seat for a long time. Uh, Steve Israel, the former chair of the DCCC, had run it for a very long time, and he was it was held by moderate Democrats for for ages. So Tom did not take that for granted. He had a, a pretty aggressive game plan for for flipping a lot of these red areas. And he, he he ran like a tactician
0: as well. So Scott, final question on this. What this is the type of district that Democrats have to hold now in order to have any chance of winning the majority overall. So what are Swazi's reelection chances? So the state legislature or the state redistricting committee are going to uh,
2: it, it's possibly tomorrow are going to come out with proposal for new lines and and tomorrow I'm talking about Thursday the 15th so that could be they're going to they're going to be new lines for this district so whoever the Swazi and all the other members of congress are going to have to run uh, because of that whole quirk last year that Or Two years ago, the Court of Appeals knocked down Democrats, said they gerrymandered it. So uh, a special master drew these lines. No one was happy about it. And now the state gets another shot at drawing them. So I think they'll be more favorable to any Democratic candidate for sure. So that would bolster Swazi's chances. But the the calculus on both sides was an incumbent is going to have a better chance of winning in the fall. And that's why you saw $20 million being sent. Spent in this district. So the question is, is Mozzie Pillip going to run in a rematch or are they going to go with someone else or are the Republicans not going to want to spend so much in this district? And because the local Republicans, sometimes they put they they sometimes don't really care about the congressional races. There's not a lot of patronage to be had with winning the seats and uh, they don't want to invest their own money. They'd rather invest it in the state. And local races, and the, the national committees don't always pony up. In this case, the national Democrats, Hakeem Jeffries, DCCC, they put a lot more money in than House Republicans did. And I think if you can contribute, if you can attribute success to any organizational structure, it would be the federal. I, I think the Nassau Republican, Nassau Democrats probably helped, but
0: they, they were benefiting from a federal infrastructure. Well thank you Scott for joining us thank you for being on the ground for your entire life basically <laughs> just for this one moment for this podcast <laughs> and finally our last segment look what i found uh, where we talk about anything new that we've been we've been into whether it's a movie restaurant food it could be anything jacob what did you find
1: so i I'm a regular at the DuPont Circle Farmers Market, and right next to the DuPont Circle Farmers Market on Sunday mornings, there is a little flea market on Q Street, and there's an old vintage goods seller there, and I was there this past weekend, and the, the guy sells kind of old cards and things like that. He had a bunch of vintage Valentines, and he had this one card that was like a little cartoon, and it said on it you are the one for me spelled like the letter U, the letter R, and then the, and then the number one and the number four me. And it was from the 1950s. And it's just one of those kind of things that it's like, it feels like it should be anachronistic, right? Like that's how people texted in the 2000s. And, and yet, You know, we forget sometimes the people back then were not so different than us, and they also realized that these letters and numbers sounded like full words, and they put it in their Valentine's cards. And so it was this just kind of funny, like, not realization, but just just a really fun moment to see that, like, we've been doing things the same way for a lot longer than I think we uh, sometimes
0: realize. And I wonder if back then, old people like me would have been perplexed by, what is this saying? (laughs) Did some teenager write this? (laughs) What is is going on here? Exactly, yeah. Uh, Well, our our family found uh, a movie on Disney Plus called A Million Miles Away, which is the story of an astronaut named Jose Hernandez. And I might have impressed my kids for a couple of seconds when I told them that I interviewed Jose Hernandez, the real Jose Hernandez, when he ran for Congress in California back in 2012 against Republican Jeff Denham. And they're like, really? What? And then I was actually impressed with myself because I recognized the real Jose Hernandez made a cameo in the movie at the end as uh, just sort of a, a NASA worker who was helping the actor playing him getting into the shuttle. Uh, maybe that's a spoiler alert for those of you who, <laughs> who don't know his story. But anyway, it was a the movie was better than I expected. And it was fun that kind of had this newsletter kind of had some connection to him.
1: Yeah, and Jose Hernandez still very much uh, involved in politics as a surrogate for Democrats running in the Central Valley. I think he's appeared in campaign ads, at least the last two cycles, if not longer as a endorser of democrats running in california.
0: And and the movie was a reminder about how and I felt a little bit bad looking back that because we're so focused on candidates, right, and focused on are they going to win or not that these are real people and his story is compelling and inspiring and and I probably didn't give that as much Uh, as much weight in terms of appreciate it as much uh, when we were we're just looking at these candidates, (laughs) are they going to win or not? And he he did not. It did not translate into a win or a victory.
1: I'm just imagining you in the roll call conference room being like, enough about space. Tell me about your fourth quarter <laughs> fundraising numbers.
0: <laughs> that's right. That's right. I don't care how many times you applied to NASA failed and picked yourself up and kept going, you know, kept going for it. A, it's, a, it's a good movie. It's sort of a palate cleanser. There's a lot of heavy stuff going on in the world right now, but uh, it, it's an enjoyable and inspiring movie. I, I would recommend it. And that's all the time we have. We talked about the recent special election in New York. We talked about the Maryland Senate race, the House exodus. Uh, Thank you for joining us. At Inside Elections, we provide nonpartisan analysis of congressional, presidential, and gubernatorial races. With a combination of reporting and data, we break down the key races and bring valuable context to complex elections. Go to InsideElections.com to subscribe to our biweekly newsletter. We have individual subscriptions as well as group packages that are tailor-made to help corporate and association packs. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on all all the platforms. Uh, Give us a rating. If you're watching it on YouTube, please subscribe and, and click the thumbs up button. If you didn't like today's episode, please email George Santos. We also want to thank our producers, Alan Toszynski and Melissa Lenner of Pretty Easy Podcasts and our associate producer, Conrad Tolosa. Please come back and join us again next time.